Well, it is so good to be with all of you. Thanksgiving has come and gone. The great American liturgy that is Black Friday has passed, and so we come to Advent. A couple years ago, um, around this time of year, I got to sneak away from Dallas, and uh, I went to this beautiful, breathtaking camp that was nestled in the San Juan Mountains in Colorado uh, for a silent retreat. And while I wasn't alone in this camp, uh, for three days, there was, there was no talking, no interaction, no conversations, uh, certainly no television or Netflix or, or whatever, anything like that. I went on hikes, I read, um, I sat by the little fire in my tiny cabin, I, I took a lot of naps, uh, mostly I did nothing in my cabin for three days. You come to realize over an extended time like that, Uh, just how addicted we are to noise, like anything to distract us from uh, one of our greatest fears, and that is the fear of silence. Just some images from this past week that sort of brought into clarity for me the power of silence. The first one is, uh, this may have been the first game, the opening game of the World Cup, but if you saw this image of the Iranian soccer team lined up for their national anthem. And if you've watched any World Cup or you know, FIFA soccer games, this is like a tradition, it's really sacred. Um, the, the national pride of this moment is millions and millions of people around the world are watching. And instead of singing their national anthem with pride, the Iranian team stood in silence, in solidarity with the protests of Iranian women who've been silenced by their government and oppressed for far too long. And that moment of silence was more powerful than than anything they ever could have said. Or here's um, another picture, kind of a different angle on the power of silence. Uh, Yesterday, there was an article in the New York Times about the quietest place on earth. And it's actually in Minneapolis, which, you know, I have no idea why Minneapolis is the quietest place on earth, but there you go. This is a silent, um, a, a silence chamber, a windowless silence chamber inside of a recording studio in Minneapolis, where it is so quiet that apparently the longest anyone has ever been able to stay and sit in this room is 45 minutes. Like it will literally drive you to hallucinate and to panic and to have like all these just, just kind of craziness breaks out because you've never heard the sound of pure silence and you, you know the, the noise the, like your heart pulsating is just like driving you crazy and nobody knows what to do with this so um, there's actually the owners of this recording studio have said that they will give an award of $600 to anyone who can last one hour in this silence chamber so if you're looking for a little extra Cyber Monday cash and you want to go for it there you go might drive you crazy but um, but that's the power of silence for us So, I want to ask you to turn uh, in your Bible or in that Bible there in front of you to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. And I know it's not printed on the worship guide, but our journey into Advent and into the silence this morning uh, takes us to the end of Malachi. And I don't know what page it is, but you're going to be able to find it. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And Malachi, Malachi ends with this announcement of a season of judgment and reckoning for God's people. And what follows out of that, if you turn the page in your Bible, and if your Bible is like mine, I don't know about the Pew Bibles, but I've got this header page that says the New Testament. And what that single page in 
the Bible represents between Malachi and Matthew is this period of history that seminary nerds refer to as the intertestamental period. That single page turn in the history of Israel represents 400 years. 400 years where where the God of Israel, there's no recorded word from God. 400 years of silence from heaven, which is so stunningly different from everything else that we encounter about the nature of God when we read through the Old Testament. Going back to the opening pages of Genesis, through the seven days of creation, where there's this refrain with each day of creation, and God said, and God said, and God said... He speaks creation into existence. Then God comes and he speaks to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And he spoke through Moses and through David. And then when you turn to the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and and Micah, over and over again they cry out, Thus saith the Lord. And we may not like what he has to say, but, but it, it, whatever is true of the God of the Old Testament, our God is a God who speaks to his people. But then all of a sudden, with a single page turn, there's deafening silence. And what makes that silence even louder for God's people is, is that in this intertestamental period, they have been conquered by one kingdom after another. First the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and now the Romans. They're living in oppression, 400 years of darkness, oppression, and silence from God. So just to set the table for this Advent journey, which this is kind of sounding a little bit dark for like the beginning of Advent, isn't it? Well, that's sort of the idea, is the darkness, and we're going to live into the darkness a little bit this year, which as Wes Wes mentioned at the beginning of our gathering, Advent is this season of waiting, of longing for God to break the silence and pierce through the darkness with his light. And one of the symbols of this to help us understand Advent is this Advent wreath. And these four candles, which represent the four Sundays of Advent, and really these four themes or longings of every human heart as we wait in the silence. And you might have grown up in a church where each Sunday they talked about, in the progression of Advent, the candle of hope and peace and joy and love. And this Advent, we're going to walk through each of those, each one of these, with a bit more intentionality. Um, And just an early Christmas bonus, if you want to memorize the order of the candles, it's harder than you think, by the way. Like hope and joy and love, they just sort of get mixed up. And, and for, you know, 40 plus, 40 years, I've not been able to memorize this until recently. Um, Greg Hobbs, who's on our staff, he came up with a great way to remember this. It's quite profound. Are you ready for this? You, read, you guys are not excited about this. Come on. It's Advent. Highland Park, Jay Lee, okay? Hope, peace, joy, love. I am telling you, you will never forget the order of the Advent candles again, Okay? Highland Park, J. Lee. So there you go. That's all the happiness you're going to get as we begin Advent. So these Sundays leading through Advent, we're going to walk together as a family of churches with Peak Street Church in Old East Dallas and Grace Lake Highlands and, and our newest congregation, Good Shepherd, in Oak Cliff. And together we're calling this series, this Advent series, The Story That Stills Our Fears. Four times in the opening pages of the gospel stories, as we turn the page from Malachi into Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, four times in the opening moments of this story, there's an angel who breaks the 400-year silence with this Advent announcement, fear not, do not be afraid. 
So this first Sunday is about God's unexpected word of hope that pierces through the silence. God's unexpected word of hope piercing through your silence and mine. So Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to start, and we'll begin our reading in verse 5. Here's what we read. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So Zechariah is a priest, and his wife Elizabeth is a descendant of the line of Aaron, which all priests in that day had to be descended from Aaron. So it's pretty much a fancy way of saying that they're both PKs, okay? Pastor's kids. And the first thing to note here, we're told that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. That's a pretty nice resume. Let that absorb for just a moment. For 400 years, not a word from God, and yet even in the silence and the wondering, where is God? Where is God? In spite of it all, they remain faithful. Verse 7, and this is where the silence hits home for them. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So not only do you have God's people enduring 400 years of spiritual darkness, but to make this more personal for Elizabeth and Zechariah, their own experience of God's silence has come in the form of barrenness. That's the word that that, uh, Luke uses to describe Elizabeth. Year after year, they had prayed for a child through their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and 50s and who knows, into their 60s. They had prayed and prayed and prayed only to have those hopes dashed once again every 28 days. And I know that some of you, some of you are waiting for an answer to that unanswered prayer right now. Verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he, Zechariah, was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. So just a little background here. At the time, Israel had about 20,000 priests, and only a tiny handful of them ever had their names drawn by lot in a lifetime of service as a priest to go into the temple and to burn incense just outside the Holy of Holies. And once you had been selected for this honor, your name was removed from the lottery. So this is Zechariah's one and only moment to draw near to the whole of Holy of Holies, okay? This was the greatest moment of Zechariah's life as a priest. Standing inside the holy place of the temple, in front of him was the golden lampstand. To his left was the great candlestick. On his right was the table of the showbread. Just beyond that was the veil separating him in the temple from the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place on the planet. And he only gets one shot. Like I was just imagining this morning walking through this, if I only got one opportunity, one shot to serve communion at the communion table and it's the only chance I get and if I don't get it right, like I'm going to be obliterated or something's going to, bad's going to happen like happened a couple years ago when I spilled the wine all over the table. Some of you may remember that. Well, Zachariah, he has rehearsed this moment for so many times in so many years, how it would feel, what he would do, how many steps it was going to take to walk up the stairs and exactly the place that he's supposed to be as he says the prayers, as he lights the incense. 
And here he is in his 60s when his name is finally called. So he makes his way into the temple. And he prayed through prayers that he had waited a lifetime to pray. And there was a lot for Zechariah to pray about. Beginning with the helplessness and the hopelessness of his people. Since the days of King David and King Solomon, Israel had been in this steady decline. Their current so-called king, Herod, was a puppet ruler of Rome and was oppressing his own people. Maybe Zechariah prayed for a king that had been promised by God in the Old Testament, a king who would one day come and make all things right. But then for Zechariah, that longing for a king who had never come, it was echoed by this longing for a child that had never been born. And there's a part of me that wonders as Zechariah is standing there in the temple outside the Holy of Holies. It's just him in the temple and got nobody else is there. And a part of me wonders if there might have been a little bit of an edge of cynicism in his prayers. Like standing in that temple outside the Holy of Holies, he's given himself to this work his entire life. And there's a part of me that wonders if at some point during that prayer session, he got to words like, God, if you're even in there, hello, where have you been for, I don't know, 400 years? Like, are you busy? Are you distracted by some other things going on? Like, we've been waiting and we're kind of getting tired of it as a people. Thank you very much. But there's a little takeaway from Zechariah, no matter how he prayed or what he brought into that temple, he had oriented his life not on circumstance, but on God's promises. He had calibrated his life on the promises of God as distant and almost forgotten as they may have been, and not on the circumstances that seemed to contradict those promises. Sure, maybe as we're about to see, maybe he had grown a little bit cynical. Or maybe that by this point he was a little bit jaded or disappointed in God. But you know what he does? He keeps showing up. He clings to spiritual practices like regular worship, even when he doesn't feel like it. He keeps praying the prayers that sometimes they begin to feel a little bit rote. Sometimes his heart just isn't really in it. He obeys even when he's not feeling it but at least he's in a place where he can recognize when God begins to break through. So Zechariah, he's burning his incense. Who knows what his prayers are sounding like in that moment. And here's what we're told, verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, the side of authority, the side of power. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. So as he's praying, Zechariah looks up and he sees an angel on the right side of the altar, the side of authority and power. Now he's read about what happens when priests encounter the glory of God near the Holy of Holies. He's read the stories about the priests who go in and they don't come out because something went wrong. So when an angel shows up near the Holy of Holies, He's thinking, this is, like, this is like crossing the streams, okay? Nobody survives that. Like, they're going to have to pull him out with the rope that may be around his ankle. I'm not sure about that one. But, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
And then down to verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, before the one who is coming, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And then here's, this is, this is Advent right here, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Wow. So Zechariah, having heard all this, said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Which isn't that really a gracious way of saying old? Right up there with chronologically gifted, venerable in longevity. I mean, he could have just said, my wife and I are very old, but he's a smart man. He says, I'm old and she's advanced in years. But look at and just, I don't know, spend a little time with this question and this kind of Q&A with the angel of the Lord outside the Holy of Holies. And I'm trying to like fathom the tone of the question, how he says it. I mean, part of it is just the, the word, how? I mean, I know, he's, I know how, but we're in our 60s. Like that ship has sailed, Mr. Angel. But in that question, is there also a little bit of like, how could this be? It's too good to be true. It's as if all the unanswered prayers and the years and the decades of not hearing from God, at some point Zechariah had come to terms with the loss and the disappointment of never having a child. And he didn't want to reopen that wound by allowing his hopes to be raised one last time, only to be crushed again. It's like he kind of knew himself and he knew that deep inside that one more disappointment might be the wound from which he could not recover. And so the fear of false hope was so great that basically Zechariah tells the angel who had come to announce the greatest news he'd ever heard, the greatest news in 400 years, and Zechariah's like, nah, I'm not buying it. It's fake news. It's just, it's too good to be true. And so here's what happens in verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. And I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, okay, so that's like, here's the consequence now. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, it's worth noting here that the medical condition of being mute of not being able to speak, this was a disqualification from the priesthood in Israel. So not only did the angel in that moment take away Zechariah's voice, but he took away his vocation, his identity as a priest. So Zechariah is, stuck, is struck silent for nine months. Now, as, as much as that may seem like a punishment in this moment, like you didn't listen to me, you started laughing, you were sarcastic, and so here's the punishment, um, and just the little takeaway here for all of us, if an angel shows up and speaks a word of the Lord over you, don't go with the cynical response. Just say, thank you. Okay, great. But what's more amazing to me than the consequence of silence is that the consequence is limited and restrained to silence. Okay, go with me here for a minute. Zechariah's laughing, his laughing disbelief, it doesn't actually disqualify him. The angel Gabriel isn't like, well, I'm going to show you what happens to people who laugh at angels. 
No, it's this moment of grace, of restraint. God's promise still stands. Even when Zechariah is faithless, God remains faithful. The promise of God still stands. Isn't that good news? His promise is not dependent on Zechariah's faithfulness or your faithfulness or mine. God doesn't call the whole thing off because of Zechariah's doubts. It's as if God says to him, you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually going to give you the gift of silence. Yes, I'm going to put you on the sidelines for a season, Zechariah, but I'm doing it not to be punitive and not to punish you, but so that you can see just how faithful I am as the promise maker. And Zechariah has this nine-month front row seat to witness the promise of God growing inside the womb of Elizabeth. And you try to picture again what that pregnancy journey must have been like for them. The almost laughable, is this really happening to us? Shock factor. Like early on in the first or second month, they start to do the math and they're like, we might hit the initial enrollment period for Medicare before this baby comes. And the whole time Zechariah can't speak. And so one day, you know, she takes his hand and she puts it on her tummy and he feels that kick for the first time. Again, this odd mercy that Zechariah's silence actually forced him into being sidelined from his job as a priest so he could be there with her the whole time. Well, fast forward nine months. This is down in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And if you know the story, their son would grow up and he would become John the Baptist and he would prepare the way and prepare the hearts of God's people for the one who would break the silence once and for all, the king that they had been waiting for and praying for and longing to come for 400 years. You know, there's a lot of waiting in this story. A couple waiting on a child, Zechariah waiting years to be drawn by lot to enter into the temple. Israel's been waiting 400 years for deliverance. And if there's one thing that we are so not good at in our day and in our culture, it's waiting. You ever notice that? Maybe some of you more, are more advanced in years, saints in the room this morning, like you've watched as this has changed in our culture and in our families, the erosion of our culture's capacity to wait. Like Friday night, we came back, we had a flight, got in pretty late Friday night, and um, we had been out of town all week for Thanksgiving, and we didn't, like, there were a lot of things we didn't have, laundry detergent being one of them, and family of five, this is, you know, this is a big deal to not be able to get the laundry train started right away. There were a few other things we needed around the house, and so I went to Amazon, and I was so disappointed that Amazon only offered next day shipping and not overnight delivery. And I was like, what a bummer. Like, what's happened to the world? Who goes next day anymore, right? I want the 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. window tomorrow. And so it's no wonder that this chronic impatience, it, it infiltrates and makes its way into our spiritual lives. Like, if we don't hear from God right away, I need to hear from the, give me a window tomorrow, God, like Amazon, 
about the job search or the relationship that's gotten messy or this problem with my kids or some health, health issue. And if I don't hear in a limited time, it's like, well, he must have abandoned me or he must not exist or he certainly doesn't seem to care. And I wonder if God is inviting us this Advent season like Zechariah and like Elizabeth and like Israel to wait. And maybe he's like, hey, I got this and I'm with you in this moment but I want you to learn how to trust in my promises. And we cannot say this enough that in God's economy, waiting is never wasted. It's never wasted. Often it's in the waiting that God shapes and refines and, and, and begins to chisel away all that stuff that isn't from him in our lives. And he begins to untether us, and this may be painful, but he untethers us from all these idols and these comforts that we cling to. I've talked before about how early on in our marriage, Allie and I had to wait a lot longer than we had ever thought we would have to wait to start a family. But those years, waiting in those years together and all that time that seemed like silence and just the baptism after baptism for me, on Sunday mornings to the point where Allie's like, I don't know that I can come to church anymore on baptism Sundays. Like, it's too painful. The silence is too painful. But in that, somehow, we link together and we learn together ways that we could love and join one another in the trenches of disappointment and then how to join with other people in the emptiness, in their suffering. And it, and it made me a better pastor and it helped us to love one another more and we learned how to be more patient how to be less controlling, more like this than this, and yielding things to the plans of God. Waiting on God doesn't mean we're just lounging or passive. We just let life do its thing. No, in the scriptures, waiting is active. It's words like wrestling and struggling and praying and watching and listening and learning and practicing. It's disciplined. It's about living out faithfulness even when we don't feel like it. Which I know I've kind of picked on Zechariah, but even though he almost laughs off the angel Gabriel, even after all these years, Zechariah was still there and he was ready to come to the altar. Zechariah didn't bail on God. He didn't walk away from the priesthood like, I got better things to do. I mean, you got to think that there were some times when Zechariah was like, what's the point? Why bother with the incense and all the, the stuff of religion? Like, he's not coming. 400 years. But he stuck with it. And he cultivated the disciplines of prayer and reading scripture and worship. He was stoking the embers of worship even when he didn't feel like it. So that when God finally showed up, Zechariah was there and he was ready. Even though he didn't believe it at first, he had ordered his life in such a way that he would see it when God chose to break the silence. And so maybe this Advent season, maybe you might be enduring your own experience of silence. Maybe you're barely holding on. Maybe... The fact that you're here this morning is kind of a big deal. And maybe it's been a long time since you have felt anything resembling the presence of God. And if that's true for you, if that's true for you in this room today, I want you to know that you are absolutely not alone. 
And I'm not going to ask you to like raise your hands or to close your eyes and look up at me if this is true. But I mean, if we were to do a little survey moment and I were to ask you, all of you in this room, anybody walking through darkness right now? Anybody enduring the silence? You've been waiting. You've been praying for breakthrough or healing or just like hope because you don't have any. Or for someone in your life that you are watching as they lose that battle with addiction or anxiety or self-hatred or loneliness. I mean, if we did that, you would know that you are not alone. And so here's the invitation in this season of Advent. And this is what I want to invite you and what I need to be invited into. And it's this, keep coming to the altar. Keep coming to the altar, even when you don't feel it, in, the, in those moments more than ever. Like, just show up. And maybe that's all that you can do, even if you don't feel it. Keep stoking the embers of worship. And let's journey together so that we know that we're not alone. Let's cling to God's people. And may we calibrate our lives around the promises God has made and not the circumstances which seem to contradict them. Christmas declares the faithfulness of the promise maker. God did what he said he would do. He sent his son, born into the silence and the obscurity and the darkness of of, of poverty as a promise that he would never leave us or forsake us again. So Father, we hold on to that together that you have never made a promise you won't keep. And whether we're feeling it right now or not, we thank you that we can be in this place and we long to hear you and to receive your hope, your living hope for us. As we think about these last few days, and maybe for some of us, it's just been joy after joy or reminders of all the ways that you've been faithful. And maybe for some of us, just that familiar friend showed up again to Thanksgiving, that that reminder of somebody who was lost. The grief and the sadness that we thought that we were over and, and we were just thrust right back into it this Thanksgiving. And we pray that as we intentionally make this shift into Advent, that you would help us with intentionality to look for the ways that you are breaking through the darkness and, and, and give us ears to hear your voice as you speak through the silence. You who are our living hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.